0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit AscendKC.org. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and I know if you're familiar with the Bible or Christianity or have grown up in the church, you would expect that during Advent season we'd somehow land in Luke 2. Well, today is our day. Luke 2 is where we'll be anchored. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and find Luke 2 on page 857. And this is likely a familiar account of the Christmas story. And maybe some of you have the experience watching Christmas, uh, the Christmas special with the peanuts, and hearing Linus give the account. I'm sure this will be familiar to you. But uh, we want to unpack it in a very special and unique way to highlight the topic of peace. This is our third Sunday in Advent. We've gone through kind of a journey of the, the Terrell experience with Christmas. We looked at hope through the eyes of young Jeff, who grew in his hope of Christmas through the Sears catalog and specifically the Star Wars pages. Uh, we also saw last week the girls in our family that grew in their joy Of Christmas through running down the stairs and seeing what had been left for them overnight. And this morning, we continue the idea of peace through Christmas realities. And maybe you can relate to me on this as an adult. Have you ever been in the room when kids are opening Christmas presents? It is chaos. There is paper going everywhere. Isn't it amazing how much time we spend wrapping presents and it's gone in a nanosecond? And there's squealing, there's, there's all kinds of excitement, and then, as an adult, there's that moment when you realize, well, tranquility, peace. The kids are actually pay, playing with their, their new toys and gifts, and for a moment in time, all seems to be right with the world. You see, peace is conjoined with Christmas. In fact, listen to all of these songs that you are likely familiar with that include the topic of peace. Silent nights, hark the herald angels sing. O little town of Bethlehem, good Christian men rejoice. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and I'll stop there, but there are more of them. And it just reminds us that Christmas and peace go hand in hand, or do they? Maybe you can relate to me that the Christmas season is often not filled with peace, whether it's trying to work through the Christmas wish lists of family, whether it's through realizing that you missed the Black Friday special and now the price has doubled, whether it's trying to figure out the the month ahead and how you're going to be able to visit all of the family and make the trips and make everybody happy. Christmas is not necessarily filled with peace. neither is the world is it neither are our lives and you know what's interesting is that as we reflect on these realities it may seem like there's a contradiction in life with peace in fact even if you study the bible and you look at how the bible talks about peace you might even see potentially a contradiction in fact Isn't it amazing that every letter of the Apostle Paul begins in the introduction with the phrase, in some variation, grace and peace. And yet Jesus Christ says in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the world. So, what's the deal? It seems like there's a contradiction, both in the world around us, in our own lives, and in even the Bible. So, What do we do with it? Well, as I've explained so many times here at Ascend, any time there's an apparent contradiction, the issue is not with the Bible or with God. The issue is with our definitions and our expectations. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to study a passage with which we are likely familiar to hopefully recalibrate our understanding, our definition, our expectations of true peace. That's the big idea of this passage And in order for us to gain these tools and to be able to effectively use them, we must unwind our definitions and expectations of peace. So four uns that Luke's account will give us to be able to recalibrate our definitions of peace. Number one, God's peace is unnatural. God's peace is unnatural. And I'll just share with you that as you read through the account of Jesus' birth, the point that Luke is making is that he's contrasting the world's peace and the world's offer of a gospel with that of Christ. That's the point. And so specifically, I draw your attention to verse 14. This is the chant of the angels. It's more likely a chant than it is a song. And the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. So here Luke and the angels and the Holy Spirit are drawing our attention to this concept of peace, but he's providing through the details a contrast, a contrast between the peace that God offers and the peace that the world offers. And in order for us to begin to see this, I want to take us on a little journey of biblical interpretation. You see, we must remember that as 21st century Americans reading an English translation of the Bible, the first question we must ask is, What did the original author mean to the original audience? And you don't have to be an expert on Greek or Hebrew or have a seminary degree to be able to understand this. In fact, all you have to do is look back at Luke chapter 1. If you look at verse 1 and 2, we begin to understand the purpose of Luke writing this gospel. And he reveals to us that in his day... Many people had written accounts of the life of Jesus. And so Luke decides, I'm going to write another account of the birth and the life of Jesus, but I'm going to do it specifically to a man in verse 3 named Theophilus. Do you see it in the text? I'm drawing your attention to the text to show you that you too can do this. Theophilus is the original audience. And we begin to understand who Theophilus is by the details that Luke provides. First of all, we see that Theophilus has a Greek name. So he is likely someone who either grew up or has been greatly influenced by Greek culture. And Greek culture, as you study the Bible and as you study history, was focused on orderliness and logic and philosophy. That's why Luke says in verse 3, It seemed to me good also, having followed all things closely from time past, to write an orderly account to you. So what that signals to us in the 21st century is that Luke intends to make a point through the details that he provides, through the order of the stories, through the accounts of Jesus' preaching. This is the point of his writing, and this informs us in the 21st century. But there's also other details. In verse 3, he provides a phrase before Theophilus' names. Do you see it in the text? Most excellent Theophilus. You can write down Acts 24 and verse 2. The same author, Luke, writing to the same original audience, Theophilus, uses this exact phrase to describe the Roman governor of Judea named Felix. So, so what are we doing by going through these historical details and the details of these opening verses in Luke 1? We are actually educating ourselves as to the original audience and the purpose of the original author writing. That's so important for us. And he actually says at the end of verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He's wanting to educate this likely high official in the Roman Empire, likely greatly greatly influenced by Greek culture, the accurate understanding of the details with which he's familiar. So now that we understand that, now we can understand better Luke 2. And he says in verse 1, the verse that you're familiar with from Peanuts. In those days, the decree went out from whom? Caesar Augustus. We've got to do a little work for us in the 21st century. Caesar Augustus became emperor of Rome in 27 BC. He was emperor after two decades of civil war and great unrest in the Roman Empire. In fact, so much so that the Roman citizens thought the empire was on the edge of crumbling. Caesar Augustus comes on the scene and immediately begins instituting reforms and recalibrations of government, of society. Historians tell us that Caesar Augustus is one of the most important leaders in all of world history. And we learn about Caesar Augustus and now tie this into the peace that the angels were chanting in verse 14 by understanding that the period in which the account in Luke occurred and the writing by Luke to Theophilus is during a period of time in Roman history called the Pax or Peace Romana of Rome. The peace of Rome is two and a half centuries that are known throughout Roman history as the golden Age of peace. And this was of primary importance to Caesar Augustus. In fact, he declared himself the savior of the world. He, he wrote an extended document that he instructed to be read in front of the Senate when he died, and it was translated into English as his works accomplished. And in these works accomplished, he testifies to his desire to be known as the architect of sustained peace to the entire world. That was his focus. So now you can see that everything that Caesar Augustus did had as its ultimate goal, how he would define peace for the Roman Empire. That's important as we further examine verse 1. Do you see what it says? A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be what? Registered. Now this may seem to us as U.S. citizens what we experience every few years that this is simply a census to see how much the population has grown or declined but it's so much more than that. The word registered literally means to be registered on the official tax list. And now you're starting to see a little bit behind the curtain the Pax Romana. In fact, Roman historian Tacitus said that Pax Romana was a thing to be feared, experienced through brute force. Now, why am I providing all of this? Because the details that Luke provides in the birth narrative are intended to signal Theophilus and us to this fact the peace of God is not the same as what the world provides. In fact, here's a quote that the team will put up on the screen. The peace offered by Christ is not defined or achieved or enjoyed the way that human nature defines, achieves, or enjoys human peace. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew ten thirty four. Do not think that I have come to this world to bring the peace that the world offers. The way that the world system defines peace, the way that the world system enjoys peace, his peace is different. And the angels are declaring this to be so in verse 14, but we further have to examine this account in order for us to see that more clearly. So we're going to jog through this amazing passage. Let's get our running shoes on and look at number two. Peace from God is unexpected. Peace from God is unexpected. In verses 1 through 7, Luke unpacks the birth of Jesus Christ. And so Theophilus would have understood this is significant. And he would have expected a birth announcement to follow. That's the Roman culture. The Roman culture was that if some child was born from a a high-standing family, especially the Roman emperor's family, then an official announcement would be declared. And the audience of that announcement would have been dignitaries or people of high importance. But that's not what we see in verse 8. Look at what it says. And in the same region there were who? Shepherds. Now a lot of ink has been spilled to try to understand in that day and in that culture were shepherds despised or were they revered? And we don't know. But what we do know is that shepherds were at the bottom or the low end of economic status. These were peasants and not dignitaries. And so the the signal by Luke showing us that the announcement came to the low end of the economic spectrum is unexpected. Now let's learn more about these shepherds. It says in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Now this phrase appears to simply be a location designation. They're out in the field. That's all it seems to say, doesn't it? There's so much more richness with this if you look at the original language. It, for those of you who care, it's a, it's a participle. And the word actually translates to live in a specific, specific area for an extended period of time. Now, why is that important? Because what this reveals is that these peasants were hired by the owners of the sheep and that they were spending time out in fields outside of Bethlehem, we can start to connect some historical dots to understand this was at the time before a major festival in Israel, likely Passover, where lots of sheep would be sacrificed. Doesn't that sound interesting when we come to the atonement of Christ on the cross? Isn't that cool how unpacking scripture and digging into the text reveals even more color? So these shepherds are out in the field, and it says they're keeping watch over their flock. Now, there's an untranslated word from the original that helped me personally. Maybe it'll help you. Do you ever wonder, and this is a spoiler alert, the, the, the shepherds will leave their sheep, and they will go look for Jesus. I always wondered, how did they do that? Because shepherds in ancient Israel were required to give their life for the sheep. So why would they leave the sheep, and how would that look and how would that be faithful shepherding? Well, the untranslated word actually translates that they were keeping guard of their flock in prison. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Now, of course, Luke is not talking about a literal prison, but what he's talking about is an area of confinement. And if you go over to John 10 and see how Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, he describes a little bit more detail to help us understand how the ancient world kept track of sheep. And what they would do is they would build a wall out of shrubbery or sticks that would keep the sheep in one location with one opening where the shepherd would either stand or lay so that nothing that was not supposed to come in would come in and no sheep that was not supposed to come out would come out. And so what this is revealing is that these men were actually faithful. They were actually very professional. And when they left the sheep, they probably left them under the charge of an under-shepherd who simply needed to stand in the opening. I found that interesting. But then it says that they were watching over their flock by what? By night. Revealing that the announcement of the great king of the universe came at an unexpected 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 and you ever experienced this on christmas day if you're a parent maybe you've experienced what what i have and that is you, you spend all of this time saving up your money spending your money wrapping the presents giving the presents to your kids and instead of them playing with the contents of the box they end up having more fun with the what the box Maybe you husbands have experienced this, that the the gift that you spend the most money on for your wife often is not the one she enjoys the most. It's the simple one that shows you care the most. So, So even in our experiences through our own Christmases, we can relate to the details that Luke is providing, putting on display that the birth announcement of this most incredible child comes in the most unexpected time, to the most unexpected people, again, signaling to Theophilus that the peace, the gospel of God, is most unexpected. Let me give you some other examples of this. You can write these down if you'd like, and they they really flow out of 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Do you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unexpected to religious people? You ever talked to a, a Hindu or a Muslim or a Catholic or Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and declared to them that there's only one way to salvation, and it's only through the Christ of Scripture, not Jesus plus religion, not Jesus plus ceremony, not Jesus plus works. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. They look at you and they say, that's offensive, don't they? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 Consider people in your life experiences who are secular and have no interest in religion. And you begin to explain to them that the gospel of Jesus Christ that can actually give them true hope and help in their life isn't the, the path to health, wealth, and prosperity. It's actually the path to uh, self-sacrifice. It's actually a path of humility. It's actually a path of surrender. And they look at you and they say, that's foolish. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. And then Peter adds on to this. You can write down 1 Peter 1.12. And he says that even the angels look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and they say, now that's unexpected. I can tell you this. They are looking at Jeff Terrell and they're saying, how, God? How would you place your grace upon that guy? You see, there's nothing that I bring to the gospel that is of any value on my own. The angels long to investigate this gospel because it is unexpected. And yet, it should be expected if we're looking through the right lenses, right? In fact, would you look back at chapter 1? Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 52. This is Mary's song of praise. She declares, verse 52, that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You see, God's not interested in finding the most talented, the most wise, the strongest. He's actually looking for the bottom of the barrel. And when you can get to a place where you see yourself the way God sees you, you're at the gateway to salvation. You see, the true peace of God that is offered through his gospel is an unexpected peace. Here's a quote. When we use God's definitions, his terms of access, and his expectations of enjoyment, the unexpected of the horizontal world becomes expected vertically, doesn't it? This is the challenge and the blessing and the tools that Luke provides in the details that he includes in the birth narrative. Number three God's peace is uncommon. It's uncommon. I've already watered the ground for this, but let me continue to uh, explain that typical birth announcements were given by a herald officially designated from Rome. And in fact, Josephus tells us, the uh, Jewish historian, that the more important the announcement, the more that herald would be associated and accompanied with an army and with soldiers. So we begin to see the details that Luke unpacks here, and we actually see they're common. There is a herald, isn't there? Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appears. This is an official designated messenger from king, the kingdom of God. And then it says in verse 13 that a host, literally translating and greek term that means an army throng so not only is there a herald there's actually a a massive army from heaven this is typical announcement language and then verse 10 the angel says i'm bringing you good news do you see that in the text this is the greek term euangelizo which would have been a technical term in the roman empire that historians tell us would have signaled positive proclamations about an emperor So if a herald is coming with soldiers giving a euangelizo, then the original audience would have said, oh, this must be good news from the emperor. In fact, historians go on to tell us this was a media term that was signaling good news previously unknown to its recipients. Let me give you a negative example to that, that hopefully all of us, well, not hopefully, but we've all experienced You ever had your smartphone in your pocket and all of a sudden at the most inopportune times you get a, and it's like this warning and you look down and it says emergency broadcast system. Well, when we get that, we understand that usually there's a weather issue, there's an amber alert, there's something going on in our culture. So that's the negative example, but the positive example is that if a messenger comes and says, I'm bringing you Angelizo, this would have signaled the audience that this is good news, breaking news, previously unknown from the emperor himself. So this is common announcement vocabulary. But what's uncommon is the additional details, aren't they? Verse 9 literally translates that the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. So the shepherds are taking care of their their flocks, they're doing their job, and all of a sudden, boom, the herald is there. It also says in verse 8 that this is at night. We would expect this to be in the day when there could be the most visibility It's to the shepherds. This is uh, not expected. This is uncommon. And then in verse 9, something that we would potentially just skip past. Do you see what surrounded the shepherds? Do you see what it says in the text? Look at verse 9. The glory of the Lord. This is a phrase describing in the Old Testament, listen to this, the presence of God. And the presence of God had been absent from the scriptures for hundreds of years. The last time this concept was portrayed was in Ezekiel 10, when Ezekiel saw the vision of the glory of God, the presence of God going from the Holy of Holies to the temple precincts, to the wall of Jerusalem, out the wall of Jerusalem, not to be seen for hundreds of years, but on this night in this location to this low end of the economic status The presence of God is here. This is uncommon. And then remember who the shepherds were. They were Jews. And in verse 10, the angel says, fear not. Which, by the way, let me just give you a a quick aside for a moment. Can I do that? It is normal for shepherds out in the fields watching their flocks to be fearful when they see an angel. Can we just allow for that? But now can we also bridge from that laughter to reality in our lives? There are circumstances in our lives that are natural to cause fear. But the solution that the angel provides here is the same solution that we need to apply to our fears. And that is the solution for actual change and hope and help in our moments, in our season of fear are not pills, but the word of God. Now, let me hasten to add, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with pills. I'm not saying there's something wrong with pills. There are times when medicine is appropriate. But for true hope and help and actual change of our besetting fears to occur in our lives, it is the word of God. That's not just what the angel is telling us. That's what the entire Bible is telling us. And so the angel gives us an illustration of this general principle that is affirmed in Scripture. Fear not. Why? It's the good news of God's gospel. And so what is the good news? Look at verse 11. Oh, this is beautiful. This is biblical theology. Yeah, I have time to say this. Biblical theology is understanding God's story in His terms. It is a reminder as we study Scripture that every passage points to other passages in Scripture, that every passage is intended to connect dots to get us to Christ. And if we will read Scripture in that way, then we are reading it the way that the authors of Scripture and Jesus himself read Scripture. And then the angel is doing that here. And Luke is doing it. And the Holy Spirit is doing it. Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day. Do you know of any passage in the Old Testament that begins with that vocabulary? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Isaiah 9, 6, you can write that down. I think this is very intentional vocabulary. How do I believe that and how do I conclude that? Well, look at the rest of the announcement. In the city of David, Micah 5, 2, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though you are little among the clans of Israel, from you will come forth a ruler who will rule over the house of David. He goes on to say a savior, which we can go all throughout the Old Testament to see. That there is a prophesied one who will save his people from their sins. And then he says, who is Christ? Now, it's easy for us to just see this as another name, but this has so much more significance. It's actually the Greek term that translates the Hebrew term, anointed one or Messiah. And so in this statement for the Jews, what the angel is saying is, you know that, that promised one that you've been looking forward to since the Garden of Eden? You know that one that the prophets said that just like prophets, priests, and kings will be an anointed one, but as all of those great prophets and priests and kings have failed, there will be one who embodies all of those roles and does it perfectly? This baby is the one. I'm kind of excited about that. I hope that you are. He's tying this all to Scripture to explain to them the significance of the uncommon baby who has been born. Now, verse 12 gives us a, a common sign. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws. That's common. This reveals that the mom and dad care about the baby, that they're taking care of the baby. Now, why that's important, historically speaking, is because of what follows It's not the swaddling clothes that is the primary uncommon sign. It's that this baby is going to be lying, look what it says in verse 12, in a feeding trough. Not typical. Uncommon. Now, now why is that detail given? Because if you go back to verse 7, I don't know about you, I grew up in a world where when I read this text, I envisioned Joseph going from hotel to hotel in Bethlehem because it says here literally the inn right but the original word doesn't mean inn the original word means the guest house in a or guest room in a home So what Luke is showing us is that as people went to the the place of their birth, the place of their registration, they would look up family members, go to their homes, and they would stay in the guest room, but because this was a registration, the family that they went to did not have room in the guest room because somebody else was taking that up. So Mary and Joseph stayed in the courtyard where the animals stayed that was surrounded by a small wall that would keep predators from the outside from coming in and would allow the shepherds to be able to see over and see oh there's a baby that's crying it's wrapped in swaddling clothes this is not a baby who's been discarded but it is lying in a manger that's not typical and this was an uncommon sign you ever notice how in life when we're really praying for god to show up in a major fork in our life road that it often is an uncommon answer that he provides I remember when I was in college, I was at a small Christian school, and I was playing baseball, longing to make the major leagues, and I had the opportunity to play in an elite summer league where I would play against all of the best players in college baseball. And I'm I'm thinking about this and thinking, okay, Lord, this is clearly your will. I mean, if I'm going to play major league baseball, this is an important step in that path. I promise you I will do, I will evangelize, I'll do all the good things. You know those promises that we make I sought counsel, I was praying, I even fasted. So I'm doing all the things that my God would expect of a child of his pursuing him. It seemed like this was a good thing. It seemed like it would bring glory to him. And guess what? It all fell through. And I ended up coming back to Kansas City, playing at basically an extended high school league and thinking, God, what are you doing? But you know what happened that summer? That summer? I met the love of my life, Sally, and the rest, as they say, is history. God often works in uncommon ways. And the details that Luke provides here are reminding us of that fact, that the peace of God is uncommon, just like the announcement of his birth. Let me give you three reminders of this. First of all, God's plan and power are always better than our own. God's plan and his power are always better than our own. Isn't that what we see when we see the prophecies of the Old Testament? How many times have you, in just kind of a moment of weakness or maybe pride, said, well, that's not how I would have done it? God's prophecies, his power, his plan are always better than our own. Number two, we see in the text that his timing is always better than our own. We see in verse 11, today, today, today is born to you shepherds, the Savior. Don't you think that there were previous generations who would have longed to have an angel announce that it was their day? It was their generation when all of those prophecies were fulfilled. But in this particular moment, in this particular time, God's timing was made perfect. And the same is true with your lives, beloved. Number three, God's definitions are always better than ours. Look at verse 10. Great joy will be for all the people. And I believe this phrase, as most commentators agree, refers to ethnic Israel. I think the angel is speaking specifically to the shepherds about their people and saying, great joy is now coming to you, ethnic Israel, to the people. But then, as the narrative unfolds in verse 14, it is on earth, isn't it? As Simeon says, at the temple... This will be not only the light to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And there's more details given in verse 14. This is not people who God would naturally choose to be on his team. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It has nothing to do with them intrinsically. It's not about their ethnicity. It's not about their social status. It's not about their sexual uh, gender. It's not about anything we bring to the table. It's not even about us coming to the table. And that's revealed in the phrase, on whom and with whom he is pleased. Listen to this quote. It'll be up on the screen by Bruce Metzger. It's not that divine peace can be bestowed only where human goodwill is already present, but that the birth of the Savior, God's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accord with his good pleasure. That's what the end of this verse means. God did not look forward in the corridors of time and see that one day Jeff Terrell would choose him. And so then he chose chose me. That's not how it happened. God looked forward to the corridors of time and said the most undeserving sinner in the history of creation is someone I'm going to place my good grace upon. I'm going to choose him because of my character, God said. And I'm going to bring glory by that broken vessel of clay Carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the blessing. How do we summarize this uncommon peace? Well, this quote, access to peace is uncommon because first of all, it's God's choice, not ours. Second of all, the definitions are his. Do you know how he defines me and how he defines you? A depraved sinner at the moment of conception. Psalm 51, 5, in sin we are conceived. We have a sin nature at the moment of conception. Romans 3, 10 through 12, there's no one who's righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who even seeks after God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, rebelling and pursuing our own lusts by our own wills. That's who every one of us are at the moment of conception. Those are his definitions. And the solution is Nothing but the glorious grace and mercy and completed work of Christ. So it's God's choice. It's his definitions. It's also his expectations for enjoyment. You know, the Hebrew term shalom is all throughout the Old Testament. But but what it is, is it's an absence of hostility and it's perpetual tranquility. And the enjoyment of peace that God offers is, is not this being complete, In Greek, it's irene, it's the highest esteem or favor for someone. And in this life, it's not that experience in fullness. The uncommon peace that God offers us is an already but not yet reality. Already in that no matter what circumstances you experience in life, you can have the peace of God and that is better than what the world offers. And not yet, in that the full expression of this will not be experienced until we are with him for eternity. This is an uncommon peace. How can you tell if you've received it? Well, number four, God's peace is unsedentary. I still haven't been able to come up with a better word than this. The word sedentary means to tend to spend much time seated, somewhat inactive. So how you can tell if you are transformed by the uncommon peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are not sedentary, and the shepherds show that. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them to Bethlehem, the shepherds said to one another, literally, we must go. We must see. It says that after hurrying, they went, verse 16, and found the child. This took work. This took sacrifice. Verse 17, having seen the child exactly how the angels had made known, which by the way, that phrase made known is so important. The the herald was not just giving facts, was not just giving the, the length of the child, the weight of the child, and that mama's doing well and here's the name the herald was actually making known the details so that the shepherds would understand. Here's a definition of this word translated made known. It is to reveal true meaning that is expected to lead to action. That's what I'm doing right now. That's what I endeavor to do every week. That's what you should be doing when you study God's word is you should be seeking to clearly understand it so that it impacts you for application. That's what the angels did And look at how the shepherds respond. After they see the child, they made him known. See, that's the task and the privilege for you right now. Take something that you've learned clearly and that you understand now more accurately and share it with others. That's how you can tell if you've experienced God's peace, that you've experienced it, you're enjoying it, and now you're sharing it with others. And it is to all, verse 19, they don't just evangelize forever they actually return to their normal responsibilities verse 20 and they live out their responsibilities to the glory of god first corinthians 10 31 you know when we were first parents i remember just looking at our children and from time to time they would kind of just stare blankly off into the great unknown and we would get worried that they couldn't see or that they couldn't hear and so what we would do is we would clap we would wave. And what was the expectation? Is that if they had the ability to see when we waved, they would look. When we clapped, if they had the ability to hear, they would respond. And the same thing is true, beloved, with the gospel of peace. If you have experienced it, the expectation, here's a quote on the screen, of those who have accessed true peace are that we live in victory by abiding in Christ and sharing him with others. That's it. You want to be able to live in peace this christmas season even though you may not get what you wanted even though you may not get the reaction that you wanted of the people you give gifts to even though some you know in-law or family member may be frustrated with the way you handled the the calendar you can live in peace this way and by the way i haven't defined biblical peace have i here's a definition true peace is depending on the completed work of christ for salvation and living out that reality and the patterns of thinking, speaking, and living. That's true peace. So, beloved, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, my question to you is, have you received it? And are you living in the victory of it?